Uh, We're reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, a story of one man's enlightenment, and uh, let's hear what Jesus did. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he's from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. But now as we come to God's word in John chapter 9, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you come to us as our Savior and as our Lord, as God made flesh, God become human. We pray that as we read and hear your word now, we would hear you in it, we would meet you in it, and may none of us go away unchanged by that encounter, Lord. Amen. Why can't he see? It seems like that's going to be the big question that John is trying to answer as he includes this miracle that Jesus did in his account of Jesus' life that he's giving. Seems to be the big question. Why why was this baby born blind? And the wider question, of course, behind that, why all this pain? Why all this hurt that just seems to stroll into life unasked for, without, seemingly without rhyme or reason? It seems like that's the question. Why can't he see? But actually, this miracle and the series of conversations that follows on from it takes us on, on a twisting, turning journey to answer another question, which is, why can't we see? Why can't we see Jesus clearly for who he is? And we could ask that of of those who don't see Jesus at all, but even as Christians, we can ask this question, what what is stopping us from, from a greater, a clearer sight of Jesus? So that's the question we're going to end at. 
But it does start with that question, why can't he see? And to answer that question, our instinct would be to look back for a reason, as Jesus' disciples do here in verse 2. They say, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They try to tackle the big why question of suffering, and they want to do that. They want to answer it by looking back for someone or something to blame, for some cause. What did he do to deserve this? Or what did, what did someone else do that he deserved this? Was it something his family did? And in the same way, I think that is, that's among our first instincts when we see suffering or when we experience suffering. We try and look to explain it by looking back into the past for reasons. Now, sometimes, of course, there is a reason. Last Sunday morning, we were thinking about that in James chapter 5, when it talks about how when we're suffering from illness, and sometimes that illness can be actually allowed by God as a warning uh, to wake us up to some a way in our lives in which we might be turning away from God. We might be walking onto a dangerous path to judgment, and God allows this suffering to, to wake us up, to warn us of what lies at the end of the path that we're on. And so we can look back, and, and we can say that sickness and suffering in general did enter the world as a consequence of sin. It did enter the world as a result of that first sin by Adam all those years ago. And we can also say that sometimes sickness, specific sicknesses in our lives and specific suffering in our lives can be because of specific sins in our lives. But Jesus rules out that option here. He answers, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Rather than looking back, Jesus looks forward. And that, that's the other way to explain something, isn't it? You can, you can look at why somebody is doing something, why something has happened. You can look back to what were the factors that, that kind of originated, what started the ball rolling with this. But another way you could look to explain something is to look at what that thing is aiming at. Not, I, I did this because it was in response to this thing that's happened in my past, but I did this because there's something there in the future that I want to accomplish through this. And that's what's happening here. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus takes this discussion away from where the sickness came from and towards where it is leading. Of course, this isn't the only thing that God says about suffering, but it's often a factor that we might miss as we try to process the pain in our lives that as well as asking perhaps where did it come from, we might also do well to ask the question, where is it leading? And sometimes God allows suffering so that he can work something good in us and through us. Sometimes the answer, or part of the answer to suffering in our lives is that we, like this blind man, have been swept up into this epic main storyline 
of history of God displaying his works, of God revealing himself in his son Jesus Christ to the people he created. That actually what's going on is that that he's making us part of that story. He's giving us a role in that story. Because think about it. If this man hadn't been blind, we wouldn't be able to see what it is that Jesus is showing us about himself in this chapter. Nor would the millions of others, if not billions, who have read this account of Jesus' life over the past 2,000 years. And I wonder if we met that man today and asked him, would he not say that that few miserable decades he had begging that few miserable decades of blindness and poverty, hard as that was at the time, would he not say that God had done something spectacular and that he saw it as worth it? And so what is it that Jesus wants to display in this man? What work is God doing here? In verse four, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. It's a reference to his coming death on the cross. But while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now in these opening chapters of John's Gospel, Jesus has been kind of walking through some of the institutions and festivals of first century Jewish life, and he's been showing how everything that they picture, everything that they offer, he is the one that it all points towards. He is the one that, they, that delivers the reality that they look forward to, that they speak of with their imagery, with their routines. And since chapter 7, he's been doing that at one of the festivals called the Festival of Tabernacles, where Israel had remembered how God had led them out of slavery in Egypt all those years ago, and they had lived in tabernacles, in tents, in the wilderness after that. And part of the symbolism, the imagery of that festival was water and light. And Jesus has been showing how those pictures are pictures of the refreshment, pictures of of the clarity, the enlightenment, the life that he offers. So in chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, he offered them living water. Then in chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world, something he repeats here. He repeats it as he kind of dramatizes it for us, as he brings light into this man's life using water. See how he does this miracle with water. He, he does it literally with water from himself. Living water from Jesus. He spits. And then there's this other pool of water called scent. And the point there is not that it's magical water. It is the, the, the power, the healing is in the one who sent him there. So Jesus says that, that God's intention for all this is that this This man's blindness is there because 
God wants his works to be displayed in him. And this miracle worked by Jesus as a display of God at work. But for the rest of chapter 9, what we then get is a bunch of people who cannot see that that is what is happening. A bunch of people who are blind in different ways to see that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is God, the, the light that started all the other lights, the God that lit up the universe. He is God come among us. And we get three groups of people, really, who are just blind that that is what is happening here. And as we go through, I want us to not just kind of look at them and sit in judgment on them, but to think, are there, are there bits of that in me? Are there some of the ways here, that some things here that are perhaps blocking me from a clearer sight of Jesus tonight? And perhaps you're here tonight and you don't believe in Jesus and you, you think that you, you don't understand what we're talking about, seeing Jesus as the light of the world and all this, this life, all this hope, all this joy that we find in him. Perhaps you just can't see that. Or perhaps you have seen it, perhaps you, you do believe in Jesus, but you, you have moments where you struggle to see, you know, periods where it just feels, feels stagnant and, and you think, I know that there's light here, but I'm just not really seeing it. So we started with a question, why can't he see? And the question John wants us to be asking is, why can't they see Jesus? And the first group who don't see Jesus are the neighbors. Now, they don't have an explanation about this miracle. They don't really know what to think. If you look at verse 8, it says, His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. He himself insisted, I am the man. And then in verse 13, we get an insight into perhaps why they can't see. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. That wasn't the only thing they could have done, but that is the thing that they did. See, they can't see Jesus because they don't know how to see for themselves. The first moment they encounter something baffling, something confusing, something outside of what they know, they go straight to the Pharisees, the, these religious teachers and kind of influencers that would really kind of set the tone for Jewish society. They can't see Jesus because they don't know how to see for themselves. These neighbors are so used to relying on others to see for them. And so when they encounter something new about God, something unexplained, they immediately turn to a blind trust. A blind trust that their leaders are able to see things clearly. And I wonder if that's perhaps what's blocking you from a clearer sight of Jesus today, that you're simply in the habit of deferring to what others say about him. Those others may be critics who reject Jesus completely, or they may be, in fact, good teachers, but you've drifted into sort of living your life in Christ through them. Not really wrestling with these difficult things, these challenging encounters with Jesus for yourselves, 
Now, we don't want to take this to extremes. Even Jesus appoints teachers for his church, and we've been thinking especially about that this weekend as we've appointed John as our senior pastor. So it's not that leaders and teachers are bad, but what is dangerous for us is a blind trust in teachers where we let them do all of the engaging with Jesus for us. And it blinds us to realize that actually we're we're not really seeing Jesus. We're not really seeing for ourselves. We're just seeing through someone else's eyes. Now, I've used this illustration before. It's, it's one I really like. But it's the difference between reading a book and watching the film of that book. See, when you read a book, your own imagination is awakened. As you read in your mind's eye, the characters and the locations start to spring to life in your vision as the author describes them. But as you watch a film, you're seeing the same story but through someone else's vision. You're actually giving up your imagination. You're letting the directors, the, the script writers, the actors, the set designers, you're letting them see and interpret that story for you. Now, they may be doing that accurately fitting with the author's intent for the story or they may not but either way you're putting a blind trust in them as you're you're experiencing the story through them and so your experience of the story is actually shallower is less engaged I think that can sometimes be one of the dynamics that, that stops us from seeing Jesus clearly. It's a blind trust in those who teach us. A slightly different version of this is the second group who can't see the light of the world. And this is the man's parents, and their blindness isn't a blind trust. It is a blind fear. Look at verse 20. They, they, they answer the Pharisees. They confirm to them, we know this is our son, And we know he was born blind. But when we get to the difficult question, how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. They say we don't know, but that's a lie. See, read on. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who'd already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. The parents are slightly different to the neighbors and crowds because it seems actually they do know a bit about what's going on. And they do know that Jesus is at the heart of it. But John tells us they're scared. They are afraid to follow through on the implications of that thought. What they especially fear is being put out of the synagogue. The synagogue was kind of the place of gathering for the Jews in the first century, kind of the local place of gathering, the heart of the religious community, which was in fact their whole community, the the local gathering place for groups of Jews. It was a a hub from which all the, the friendships, all the support flowed out. I think this is another thing that can blind us to seeing Jesus. It's the fear of losing that. 
And sometimes actually we've seen enough to believe. We've seen enough of Jesus for all that he's called us to trust in him for today. But it's the fear of rejection that holds us back. The fear of being put out by those communities that we love being part of. So that's the second kind of blindness. The blindness of blind fear. Now the third group who can't see Jesus. This is the group that the neighbors blindly trust in and that the parents blindly fear. And this is the Pharisees. These influential religious teachers. And why they can't see is perhaps the scariest reason of all. And it definitely gets the sternest response from Jesus. Their blindness is blind confidence. It is a blindness that thinks it sees. Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Now we've met these people before in John's Gospel, so we perhaps wouldn't be surprised if they can't see a work of God even when it's on full display. And in fact, we've already had this debate about the Sabbath before. Jesus has done that already. He's healed on the Sabbath in in chapter 5. This was supposed to be their day of rest. And he knows that they don't like it. He knows they, they don't like it when he heals on the Sabbath. And he's done it again. And the reason they hate it is because the way they see it, the only ones who do work on the day of rest, on the Sabbath, are sinners and God. Because obviously God keeps working to sustain the universe. So the only two options if someone is working on the Sabbath, either Jesus is a sinner, either he's wicked, or he is God. And they refuse to see that Jesus is God. And so they have this absolute confidence that he must be a sinner. Even though there's a a kind of division and a bit of a debate about them, they have this kind of groupthink dynamic going on where they just, as a group, they start just pushing on against Jesus. And see how blindly confident they are. Verse 24, we know this man is a sinner. They're 100% sure they have nothing to learn from him. 100% sure of what's going on with this blind man. Verse 34, they say, this is is what's going on. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? We have nothing to learn from you. If you remember back at the start, this is exactly what Jesus said is the wrong answer. This man was not born blind because of his sin. So so they're completely seeing it the wrong way, but they are so sure, so confident that they see this situation clearly, even if the facts are going the other way, even if their story doesn't line up. They say, no, you're a sinner. You're the one who's spiritually blind. You're the one who's unqualified to teach anything. But as Jesus answers that, he sticks that label, blind sinner, back on them. Verse 40, some Pharisees who were with Jesus heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were, 
blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. It actually puts you in the worst position to be so confident that you see Jesus. For Jesus, a refusal to see him as light of the world is not simply an intellectual mistake or a relational faux pas. It is a moral, spiritual problem. It leaves them guilty of sin before God because he is God. It is a rejection of their creator. So this is the most dangerous kind of blindness to Jesus, blind confidence. It makes you unable to see because you think you already see. Does anyone remember those magic eye pictures? They were really popular in the 90s. I don't know if they're still a thing. I would put one up on screen, but it would massively distract you. They were just this, it looked just like a mess of static and and colored squiggles. It just looked really chaotic, like when you print out a test page on your printer, just that kind of mess. But as you look closer, as you stared into the picture, you would start to see another picture within the picture. You'd start to see this, this kind of almost 3D shape hidden in there, another image inside the image. But I think sometimes we can be like the Pharisees were with Jesus and do this, just kind of give him a quick glance and think we've got him figured out. Just look at, look at the picture and think, yeah, just static and squiggles, nothing going on there. Just a man, just a teacher, just a miracle worker maybe. Don't know how he did that, don't worry about it. Just someone to stand in our lives at the corner of my peripheral vision, not with my gaze fixed on him, just, yeah, keep him around. Blind confidence, and added to that, these are the people who have become the teachers. Others are following them out of blind trust or blind fear, but they're the blind leading the blind. I think especially if we're in a a role of leadership, if people, if anyone is looking to us for knowledge of Jesus, and students, that's going to be you next week as you run this events week. If anyone is looking to us for knowledge of Jesus, we want to especially check ourselves for this kind of blind confidence that we see everything clearly. And so this chapter ends with a warning to those like the Pharisees, verse 39. As Jesus says, for judgment... I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Jesus started by reminding us that he is the light of the world. He is the true light that is shining into the world. And the light shining into the world judges the world. Not yet in the final judgment, but in the way in which it, it turns the lights on and reveals, shows up everything that is really going on. It turns out that when the lights are turned on, some of those who we thought were facing God were facing away. And now he's here 
the coming of Jesus splits us into these two groups. Those who see and those who are blind. And so the real question for us now has to be, how can we see? How can we see? And ironically, in this chapter, it is the blind man who sees best. Jesus gives him here not only, a, not only his physical sight, but also a spiritual sight. He is able to see the light of the world as the light of the world. He is able to get to a point through this where by the end of the chapter, he is worshiping. He's worshiping Jesus as God. Now Jesus gives him that. Sight of Jesus is a gift from Jesus as it was for this man. But what does it look like? How do we see? What does it look like to see? First, instead of a blind trust in what others have seen, Jesus wants you to see him for yourself. See the difference between the man and these crowds. The man hears what the Pharisees say, but when it feels off, he decides to stick with what he's seen of Jesus. When what they're saying doesn't quite line up, he, he, he goes back in verse 15 to what he saw. Here's what happened. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. And then they push him on it, and he concludes in verse 17 against the Pharisees that Jesus must at the very least be a prophet based on what he saw, that this must be a man from God who is speaking the words of God. So the first thing it means to see is is long to see for yourself Don't just let others see for you. Second, instead of blind fear, this man clings to what he sees of Jesus, and this helps him to see courageously. And he starts to speak up for Jesus. As the Pharisees turn hostile, he doesn't back down. He doesn't pretend he doesn't know what's going on. Look at his answer in verse 13. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Very James 5. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is a man who has seen the works of God displayed in him. And so the conclusion is, this was God working in me. If Jesus were not from God in some way, he doesn't know all the details yet. If Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. This man has no theological education beyond the the awareness that he would get through being part of Jewish culture. Just that morning, he was a beggar. And yet what he saw of Jesus gives him the courage and the conviction to stand up against the loudest voices in his society who reject Jesus, even if that means that they will reject him too. And they do. They put him out. They cast him out of the synagogue. 
as he takes that step, as he finds that courage to do that, look what happens immediately after in verse 35. Jesus heard. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out and found him. Do you think Jesus has changed? Do you think Jesus is going to leave those who are rejected for him just on their own? No, he goes out to find us. Whatever he lo- we lose from following him, he offers us back in return and much more. He brings us into his family. He gives us this new community in the church. See courageously. And third, we see in this man a resistance of blind confidence. His courage isn't like the confidence of the Pharisees. His courage comes from what he's seen, but he's actually quite careful to stick to what he's seen. He he doesn't speak beyond what he knows. Just like his his healing was in two stages. You remember there was the saliva on his eyes and then he was sent. And as he followed Jesus' instructions, as he went in faith and trusted in the one sending him, he got his sight. So that took some humility. He had to see humbly. This man is humble. He's very aware of what he doesn't know. He doesn't claim to the Pharisees Jesus is God, come to earth. He doesn't know that. He limits his claims to what he's seen and to basic truths about God that he knows. He doesn't make it too complicated. He says, look, I don't know what's going on, but what I do know is this. He made me see, and only God can do stuff like that. So in some way, there's a connection between this man and God. In some way, God is behind this man. Prophet is the best word I've got for it. That's, that's what he says. But as he does that, as he takes that step of faith, Jesus meets him and helps him see more. He helps him see the full picture, the full story. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. See that humility that readiness to see. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. As the man adopts this attitude of humility he sees Jesus meets him and he shows him everything he reveals that he is the son of man this mysterious person promised in Daniel chapter 7 that the prophet Daniel spoke of one who somehow has the right to be king over all God's people and is worthy to be worshipped as the Lord and yet somehow who is also a human And the man sees that and he worships Jesus. He calls Jesus Lord. Finally, he sees. So what about you? Do you see? 
do you see for yourself? Do you see for yourself or has the way that you make use of what others see of Jesus perhaps descended into an over-reliance? You've just kind of skipped the, the hard work of seeing for yourself. Perhaps this week you could think about ways you might go, go into your Bible reading, go into your times of prayer, and ask that Jesus would make it personal for you. Ask that he would help you grow And not just in the shadow of others' faith, but into your own faith. So that you can see him for yourself. Pray for that as you read the Bible. Wrestle for that. Don't just just very quickly, as soon as you come across something tricky, something challenging, just go straight to the person who you think has all the answers. Yes, there's a place for teachers, but I think we miss out on a lot of the joy and the depth of our, our relationship with Christ when we just depend on others to do it for us. Do you see for yourself? Do you see courageously? As you are seeing more of Jesus, is there growing alongside that a boldness even in the face of potential rejection from whichever groups you are part of? And could you perhaps draw some more boldness from the way in which Jesus went and found this man here? When he was cast out, Jesus went and found him. And he met him and he showed him everything. If you don't see courageously, you might never get that. You see courageously... And do you see humbly? Sometimes it feels like when we're worshipping that we're just going through the motions. It's a little bit stagnant. We're just repeating the words. And when that happens, perhaps one of the questions we could ask ourselves is, could it be that I think I've seen it all here? Could it be that I think I've kind of maxed out on my knowledge of Jesus, that that I know everything? I've reached the final level of the video game and I, I just kind of sit here. Is there not perhaps a touch of blind confidence about that? How about taking another look? How about thinking perhaps if Jesus is God, then there is no limit to how far beyond and above me he is. I am never going to reach a state where I am just sort of looking on Jesus and saying, right, I've got everything. (coughs) Only God has that knowledge of himself. There is always more to know. Yes, it is more of the same. But there is always more depth 
to the love of Christ that we can see. Take another look. Look to Jesus, wanting to know more, wanting to be moved to see the light of the world, to to see the, the dimmer switch kind of turned up on there. See him shine more brightly into your life. See more so you can worship more. This blind man presents us with a choice, with a challenge. We have to choose, what is it gonna be for me? Is it going to be blindness? Blind trust, blind fear, blind confidence? Or are my eyes going to be opened to see the life-changing truth of Christ? The light of the world is shining into this world. Will we see him? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that you have sent your son into the world. We thank you that the light of the world has shone and still shines. May he shine into our hearts even now. May we grow in our knowledge of him. Amen.